Hey everybody, welcome back to your favorite Gundam podcast, Colony Drop. My name is Isaac. My name is Brian, and this is a podcast where we talk about anything and everything related to the Gundam franchise. From the movies, to the music, to the models, to the anime, to the live-action film, or to early 2000s CG OVAs, Isaac, such as MS Igloo. (laughs) Absolutely right, Brian. Technically, yes. We all know this isn't an anime, but... It's Gundam still, which makes it interesting. So last week, Isaac, we started our journey back into the one-year war a little bit. We'd been away. We'd been far in the future. We'd been in alternate universes. We're back home, you know, with the Federation and Xeon on the front lines. And we, we investigated the world of MS Igloo, the first OVA in, the, in a trilogy of OVAs from the early 2000s or like mid-2000s, I guess. So this week, we're venturing forth to the second of the three OVAs. This one is called MS Igloo Apocalypse 0079, and it was released in 2006. That's right. This follows up directly after MS Igloo, The Hidden One-Year War. It's got our same cast of characters, right? We got uh, Oliver May, who's sort of the lead engineer. I guess he was assigned by the engineering department of Xeon, and he's part of the mobile evaluation team? Yeah, the 603rd Technical Evaluation Unit. Oh, of course. And alongside there is Captain Prochnow and also, um, I think, Lieutenant Commander Cadillac, right? Yeah, Monique Cadillac. There's your Gundam name. Gotta have, <laughs> gotta have one sports car name. You know, I'd known about Igloo for a while. I didn't know the details. I was aware it existed. I was aware that fans were pretty interested in it. But at the same time, even though it was a, a side story, it hadn't gotten maybe a ton of attention from most fans or casual fans and definitely wasn't something that was too high on my list to see just because like a lot of fans my uh, interest is drawn towards series and things that have a longer storyline but oh boy Brian I I deserve to be kicked (laughs) (laughs) because I really enjoyed MS Igloo the hidden one year war and I really enjoyed MS Igloo apocalypse yeah, so those listeners who wrote in and said, hey, Isaac would really like MS Igloo, you all should should watch and, and, and review that. You, you're all vindicated now, because right after we finished the first one, Isaac was like, let's let's do uh, number two next week. And I was like, all right, let's do it. So here we are. <laughs> so Isaac, I looked up, this, I tried to find a synopsis for this second OVA, and they all kind of suck. They all just basically say, the, the 603rd team continues to test more weapons. And I was like, oh, oh that's that's pretty fair. To an extent, I I would elaborate on that though. I would say that um, the hundred and sixth team. You said one hundred and six, right? Uh, six hundred and third. <laughs> oh, sorry, six hundred. <laughs> that's my team. We only test DOMs. Uh, <laughs> anyways, I would I would change that to say the six hundred and third team continues testing various weapons as the war deteriorates in favor of the Federation and the situation for Xeon looks increasingly grim. Yes, I think we reach new levels of grim. Uh, in fact, we, we, we kind of follow them all the way to the end of the war here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, literally to the end. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I really enjoyed this series, Brian. This was a great part two of MS Igloo, and I regret not seeing it sooner because it was great. It was amazing. I had such a good time watching it. Even, and I know I'm some of it's only a dub watcher, but man, who cared at this point? It was that good. I was willing to read the subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's definitely something that if you are a Gundam fan who loves the Universal Century, this is for you. If you're just a Gundam fan who doesn't, you know, maybe you've you kind of know what a Gundam is, or you've maybe only watched a few episodes here and there. This probably isn't for you. Uh, I'll be honest. This is like very much lore building and yeah, nitty gritty in in trenches uh, with Zeon during the war. So th- this is not the main course for sure. But you know, if you're a fan of the war, this is where you want to be. This is a great show. If you're a fan of Zeon. This is the Xeon side story. Sure, it's not animated. It's not a a full-blown huge series or anything like that. But, man, it is a great Xeon story during the One-Year War. Yeah, and just like the first one, you know, every episode is pretty standalone. They're digestible. And I think 
why I like this show is it reminds me a lot of like side story mangas where because every episode is somewhat self-contained, there's always a new character. And I feel like this new character that we see is always there's there's always going to be someone out there who that character becomes their favorite. Yeah, I, I just know there's someone out there who loves, for example, the the Zigok guy from from episode. Holbein. Yeah, Werner Holbein. Yeah. Uh, or I know there's Herbert von Cuspin fans out there. <laughs> despite how maybe Nazi-ish he looks, but maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I believe he's uh, putting on the Reich, as they say. <laughs> yeah, he, he may be the most. We'll, we'll get to him in, in, yeah. in a bit. But yeah, this is a great show. I, I like it. Just kicking off our story, the team is continuing to test weapons, but the situation on Earth has changed so much that the weapon they're testing now is essentially kind of a a stopgap attempt to limit the Federation sending Solomuses into space. I loved episode one's title, In the Skies of Jabro, I Saw the Sea. Right away, I was like, oh man, this is going to be good. We're going to Jabro. Yeah. I also like how just dialogue tells us that the situation's deteriorated. I think right when the episode starts, they're in the hangar bay, right? And May is talking to um, another engineer, I think, or just another crew member. And the crew member tells him, you know, oh, you know, we're using a Zegok to control this new weapon, the mobile diver. Wow, we must be running out of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have it both ways, right? You have it exposition-wise because it's so right when the episode begins that we see uh, the Jotunheim's, I'll say like sister ship, sort of the 604th team ship, the, the Muspelheim. I don't know how to pronounce it, but that ship blows up and is very near, you know, our Jotunheim. And the Captain Prochnow says, you know, the captain of that ship was the best man at my wedding. So yeah. that gives you a real sense of weight of like Zeon is pretty tight knit and things are not going well. Like now our now our team is starting to take personal losses here. Yeah. Odessa has just ended and almost all of Zeon's if you're not hiding, you had to get off Earth. So that's about when we see the Zegok thing here. How would you describe the, Z- the Zegok, Isaac? I would describe this as a a, a bizarre weapon that reflects how desperate the situation is this weapon is essentially a long rocket with some weapons attached to it and a mount for a mobile suit that can essentially pilot and control the descent of this rocket from space the way it works is the jotunheim will launch this or drop it this mobile diver will activate its own engines and sort of go into the earth atmosphere descend and on the way down if it's timed right it'll be able to uh, destroy the solomuses that are being launched from jabrow so it stops the solomuses from reaching space while they're vulnerable and essentially moving in a way that they can't maneuver too much because they're trying to leave earth's gravity the zegok mobile diver will be destroying them before they can threaten zeon in space and you know what it's a crazy idea but i love it it's like one of those things you would see uh, a World War II movie made out of. Like this crazy operation and this team, you know, has this harebrained plan to save the war effort or something. Uh, so it's weird, but I really like it. It reeks of desperation. And originally when I was watching it, we see the first the first test run, right? The mobile diver, it's, it's going to have a trial by fire. They launch it. It's flying down. It sees one Solomus heading up. I thought to myself, oh, this Solomus is going to be a sitting duck. But no, the Solomus has countermeasures that it fires, and the mobile diver missed its shot. Its missiles amounted to nothing. They didn't do any damage. Yeah, so our our pilot of this thing is Werner Holbein, or maybe Werner. He didn't seem very German to me, but... Eh, it's Zeon. Everybody's names are from (laughs) all over world cultures and, you know, etc. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's universal century brian <laughs> yeah werner he's a he's a bit weird isaac yeah kind of a comes off as a lone wolf and he was really keen on telling that story about his grandfather uh, somebody asked him about his necklace right because he had like a, an arrowhead type thing around his necklace it's actually a, a harpoon end right and i think it was washia who asked him about his necklace or maybe it was cadillac and he said oh this is my grandfather's necklace this is or my grandfather's uh, spear tip. This is all that's left of him after he died in the ocean fighting a shark. Yeah. Yeah. But he's still down there. We'd say he's not dead. 
that's our family tradition. We say he's not dead. He's still down in the water. <laughs> yeah. Well, she had a great line. He said, oh, well, he can sure hold his breath then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Werner took it pretty well, though. He didn't really, you know, respond angrily or whatever. He's quite a stoic guy. He just, I think he left the bridge at that point. <laughs> <laughs> There's a big metaphor going on here. You might ask, like, why is this a gawk on this ship? I mean, I guess it could really be any amphibious suit. The image that they're going for is that Zagok is an amphibious suit that dives into the ocean. And to Werner, the atmosphere, the sky, diving into Earth, that's his ocean. And the Zagok does serve somewhat of a practical purpose, too, because the way this mobile diver works is it, it, it will eventually land in the water and then gets picked up uh, by a gal carrier, which then takes it back to space and then it can dive again. But you do get that sort of metaphoric, you know, diving image i guess yeah exactly yeah to the <laughs> to the jotunheim crews and the uh, the evaluation team's uh, credit they didn't let that one failure stand in the way because they send it out again this time with some upgrades <laughs> they give him the what do they call it the beam spray gun something like that it was like this awesome like pre-programmed pattern laser beam though that shot out in multiple directions kind of like a star yeah, like star-looking gun? I, yeah. You're right, I don't know. Very reflesia, very flower yeah. opening up with lasers. Yeah, and the third time is also the most dangerous or, like, most daring flight path. Because I think if you remember the first time, they tried to approach the Solomons from the side, and that didn't work. The, yeah. the second time, I think they approached it from a, a downward angle, and that didn't work either. And the third time, they they approached vertically. So if, you, if you've watched Origin... In, in Origin, they show the Solomuses and the Magellans taking off from Jabro. Uh-huh. And they take off in a very, they kind of look like a rocket, basically. They just kind of fly straight up with these big boosters, and then they drop the boosters and reach, you know, uh, exit velocity. So the plan here is that they will, as the Solomus and the Magellans are coming up, directly above them will be Mr. Werner here, and he will basically let them pass and then shoot them once he falls behind them. Pretty daring, Isaac. Yeah, but guess what? It worked. He took him down with that laser. It turned out the gun version of the mobile diver didn't work because they missed. The missile version hit the countermeasures instead of the Solomus. But there's no countermeasures for lasers. No. Nope. <laughs> so the lasers hit and took down the Solomuses, multiple Solomuses. Yeah, he took out four Solomuses and one Magellan with yeah. one firing of this beam spray gun. And that thing just like carved these things up. It was like a beam saber that's on for i don't know 10 seconds and he just kind of cleaved through them and cut them all in half it was uh, amazing yeah i can understand the the economics of this in a way right it's very much the uh, rpg versus the tank yeah so no no matter what way you cut it a mobile diver will be infinitely cheaper than the five or four solomuses it can take out so for Xeon, at this point in the war, it's a cost-effective solution, if it works. Right. Unfortunately, Brian, the mobile diver ran into some trouble in the air, didn't it? It did. On his third and successful attempt, his ride home was intercepted. <laughs> uh, his Gao carrier was intercepted by some core boosters. And if you don't remember the core, <laughs> core boosters, we saw those in the original, in the original um, 0079 movie trilogy. That was kind of like the, the better version of the core fighter. So the core, core boosters show up here, they destroy the Gao, and then right after they destroy his Gao, they shoot up Werner, and he, he falls into the sea, just like his his grandfather supposedly did. But then we later find out that his grandpa actually died in a hospital bed. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't really get what the whole point or metaphor of the grandfather story was. Maybe you can enlighten me on that. But yeah, I, I mean, even I think Washia or maybe it's Cadillac said, oh, I guess for him, the truth was that his grandfather died fighting that shark. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I took it just as he's someone who prefers to b- believe in the the grander story, the more fitting story, the fantasy story. Uh, maybe he aims sure. high. I mean, look at this guy. This is a crazy operation. This dude's aiming high. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. Uh, ultimately, this... It's kind of put the nail in the coffin, no pun intended, of the uh, the mobile diver project. Yeah. But his three attempts, I'd say it's worth it. He took out five capital ships. Yeah. It's just the mobile diver is great against capital ships if you can pull off a maneuver like he did and have the mobile diver, the version that has lasers. But other than that, 
it's going to be useless against mobile suits and core boosters trying to take it down in the air. Yeah, I'd say the biggest loss is they lost that beam spray gun, right? Right. I don't know how many of those they had or if they could actually mass produce those, but too little too late now. Yeah. So the the Jotunheim moves on to test another weapon, and we, we say goodbye to yet another original character. So we salute you, Werner Holbein. You made your grandpa proud. <laughs> By the way, yeah. the mobile diver had this adorable swordfish logo on its uh, shoulder. <laughs> Did you notice that? Yeah, 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 yeah. They, I think they even spent some time like uh, there's for a quick second they actually showed the crew putting it on, right? Oh, do they? Yeah, yeah. I, I love yeah. the the swordfish logo. <laughs> it looks pretty cool. I liked it. So on episode two, Isaac, this one was called "Cross the Path of Light." In here, you're immediately introduced to the new weapon, and you immediately know that the war is not going well. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> this war. <laughs> oh my, I don't even know how to, I have to pull myself together and uh, for the name of Zeon. <laughs> okay. Okay. Listeners at the start of this weapon, once again, may is appearing in front of the head of the engineering department who explains to him that situation is bad and he's going to be testing a new weapon they've put together and have been working on. It's not a mobile suit, though, Brian. What is it? It is called the Mobile Pod Ogo. Or Ago? Oh, how do you say it? I say Ogo. I say Ogo. Because it rhymes with Ono. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Which is what you say when you look at it and you're being told you're going to pilot it. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. So the Destroyer Mobile Pods, Xeon has started to mass produce them for the coming battle, which we all know will eventually be Abawaku. They're, at this point, they're not really sure if the battle is going to be at Abawaku or at uh, Granada. But this this episode takes place, I think, on December 28th, which is after Zeon's defeat at Solomon, but before their defeat at Abawaku. Right. So they're already low on mobile suits, probably. Uh, a lot of people died at Solomon. So enter the mobile pod, the supposed solution to this. So if you, if you think back, right, listeners, episode one, we saw the Jormungand or whatever it was, yeah. the big cannon, right? right? Great weapon. Then we then in the next episode, we saw the, the tank, super cool yeah. weapon. Um, then we saw the Zuda, super cool suit. And then episode one here, we saw the mobile diver getting a bit desperate. Yeah. And now we're hitting the mobile pod. Now we've reached full desperation. <laughs> Brian, is it me or does the, the Ogo look like a colony escape pod with weapons attached? It does. Yeah. yeah. If you remember mm-hmm. it, they're essentially cylinders, sort of rounded cylinders like those fuel tankers you see sometimes on being pulled by trains or on the highway. This is essentially it with a cockpit in the middle and then they slap some guns to the sides. There's some mechanical arms yeah. underneath it and that's it. <laughs> While it's not a flashy design by itself, I appreciate that it is a little bit Xeonified, right? It's got the mono eye. Even the even the pods have the mono eye. Yeah. And it does use Zaku weaponry. Did you notice that it was holding like the Zaku machine gun? Yeah, they they made a point to say, I think the engineering guy said that they essentially slapped their existing weapons on it cuz that's all they have. And if they're able to get any more, they'll send them to me. <laughs> yeah. So this is basically Zeon's answer to the ball. Probably the most embarrassing weapon that the Federation has ever rolled out. So the Federation went from having the ball to the GM. The Zeon is going backwards, right? They had the Zaku and all the great suits. Now we're now we're getting the Ogo. So clearly something's wrong. Yeah. So after we're introduced to the the Ogo, a silver Gelgoog lands uh, on the Jotunheim, Isaac. And who gets out? Who gets out is a man named Cuspin. <laughs> He is a very headstrong officer, very commanding personality. And unfortunately for Captain Proch now and for Cadillac, he outranks them both. So finally there's someone on the ship that nobody can match in rank because he's there to tell them what to do now that we're here at the final battle. He specifically tells them that, yes, we will continue collecting data, but ultimately we're going to be doing combat. So... Everybody's going to have to listen to him from now on. And in case 
listeners aren't aware, uh, Cuspin is to a degree infamous in Gundam fandom because his character was designed to look like the spitting image of an SS officer from Germany during World War II. He's got the that full trench coat, and he's even got like a little a little cap that you don't see too many Zeon officers wearing. Yeah, he literally looks like you opened a World War II textbook. Yeah, and this guy stepped out. Right. Yeah. When I first saw him, I was like, "Well, that's a little on the nose." <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, uh, to Cuspin's credit, as we see throughout the episode, I wouldn't say he's a terrible Zeon guy. No, I don't think so. The one interesting thing that I did note is I, he is very happy when the solar ray fires, whereas I think May and, and Cadillac maybe hmm. were a little more reserved. I think he was more aware that not only did it exist, but it was going to fire. May and Cadillac might not have been... On, as up to date on the details and information as him since he outranks them. He's clearly been sent there for, for combat reasons and as part of the uh, the final preparations for battle. And uh, he, he has a great line in this episode. Prochnow or, or someone asks him, you know, well, how, how are we going to fight? And he says, well, all the heroes have been burned in Solomon. And then there's this quick flash of what I think is implied to be the solar system firing. And Solomon. Did you notice that? Yeah, we see a silhouette of Solomon. It's white. You can barely make out. Well, not barely, but you can see the outline of Solomon. So we know what's happening. <laughs> yeah. But Cuspin says that, oh, the new elites will arrive, you know, to take those heroes' places. Oh, boy. <laughs> Who are those elite pilots coming to save the day? Coming to save the, the Cuspin squadron? Well, like a lot of uh, Xeon fans and uh, eager watchers, I thought, okay, we're going to get some cool aces here in the, the home stretch before the one-year war ends. This is going to be a ragtag group of like tough guys that the Xeon picked to pilot the Ogos. But no, Brian, we cut to the hangar bay, and a group of teenagers are there, lined up in rows in their little Xeon uniforms, Ready to greet Cuspin, who is shocked to meet them and shocked to see that they're a bunch of teenagers. And they tell him, or at least one of them does, that they're actually volunteers, Brian. They are out here fighting for their nation, and they're proud of it. And I think Cuspin, uh, he he asks them, I think, three questions, and they're like in increasing severity with an accusatory tone of like, why are you so young and inexperienced? And I think his last one is, have you ever even seen the enemy? And they they basically say no, but we're still ready to fight. And I that I that gave me a good laugh. Yeah, yeah. This kind of you know, it's very uh, very Germany in the last days of World War Two, right? A bunch of children and teenagers fighting the fight. So I I can see where this was drawn from. It just shows, too, how damaging Xeon has been, brainwashing its own people and its, the, you know, the children of its own own colonies into to fighting this war to the bitter end. And even Cuspin, to an extent, I, I'm sure he had reservations and maybe regrets <laughs> about having children fight for him. It's not ideal. <laughs> I took it that he knew that it wasn't going to go well. But that he is so headstrong, he just pushes forward, right, without without letting on right. that anything yeah. is going to go badly. But if you think about it on its face, this is a recipe for disaster. So not only are you have mobile pods, which clearly those aren't going to work out, and now they're going to be piloted by teenagers. Yeah. So, you know, maybe if you had the teenagers, but maybe they were aided by some great technology, <laughs> maybe they'd be a little more even. I, I, but here <laughs> you've got, <laughs> it just, you know... I, I knew a lot of death was about to happen, Isaac. Yeah, I think Cuspin clearly would have wanted one of two situations. Either he'd be okay with the Ogos if they were piloted by experienced pilots, or he'd be okay with the teenagers if they were given quality mobile suits. But he got neither. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he got snake eyes. But um, speaking of headstrong, Brian, who is among these teenage volunteers? Maybe the most outspoken of the volunteers is Lieutenant Commander Monique Cadillac's younger brother, Erwin Cadillac. So, well, that was a curveball. Didn't see that coming. Uh-oh. And uh, so he's going out in the first squadron of pods. We get into a little a little skirmish, Isaac. Some Salamis's approach. And there's a lot of Salamis's. Can I just say that? I think 
Or how many Salamises has the Jotunheim evaded so far? Do- I feel like dozens. We, we come upon them all the time. <laughs> not o- it's, a, it's a scary world out there. <laughs> not only that, Brian, but these are MS Igloo Salamises. So they fly yeah. like the, like a bat out of hell. All right? These things move quick. I don't know what happened in the animated series, but these <laughs> things essentially are moving at like Mach 12. <laughs> yeah. These things haul ass for sure. Nobody walks in these Salamises. Everyone's strapped in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you better put your damn seatbelt on. Yeah. Then this episode becomes a six-on-six six duel, Isaac, between six balls from those two Salamises and six of the, the Ogo pods. Yeah. I had to pause the show and be like, this is incredibly novel, very dangerous, but hilarious at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, okay, based on the communications with the Federation, they're newbies too. They're rookie pilots too in the balls. You know, why else would they be sent to the moon when the whole main attack force is heading towards a Baoku, right? Right. And at the same time, I was also thinking, okay, the little brother of one of the main characters is here. This can only have a tragic ending. Did you see this coming from a mile away, Brian? <laughs> Absolutely. This is a Gundam show. Yeah. Someone's dying for sure. <laughs> as soon as they introduced him as a private or whatever his rank is cadillac i was like oh he's dead yeah he's dying today he's gonna get in that pod and he's dying even she thought so though because i think when he and like the first squad are going out she says something like they're gonna become driftwood or something so that's not (laughs) that's not the language of victory (laughs) no no it's not but that said before before the inevitable happens they do put up a pretty good fight I think when uh, Cuspin or whoever was in first introducing the, the, the Ogos, they did specifically say that the Ogos are better than the balls, that they perform better than the Federation's balls. And I think we saw that on display. Yeah, yeah. I mean, despite their uh, lack of training and maybe because of their zeal, the Ogos essentially wipe out the balls. They lose a few Ogos too. But, yeah. you know, Irwin really shows that he's pretty great in the Ogo. And... He's dueling one. It looks like they're, you know, maybe going to end up destroying each other or whatever because he runs out of ammo, so it becomes just a, a grappling duel, sort of like Outlaw Star. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, I did I did get a lot of Outlaw Star vibes from the Ogos. Yeah. <laughs> just the arms, right? <laughs> Which, know. that's probably the highest compliment that you could, you could pay an Ogo, is that it reminds you of Outlaw Star. Yeah. I, I can't think of another great thing to say about the Ogo. No, because like for for where the person sits, they're just too wide. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, <laughs> you know, I was watching this and I was like, wow, Erwin lived. He even took a prisoner and they're going to take him back to the, the Jotunheim. But sadly, Brian, it was not to be. And also, my God, the Federation abandoned the balls to their fate. They took off. Yeah, that whole thing at the end with Erwin, it was another step in the direction of painting Zeon as sympathetic and the Federation as the bad guys, right? Yeah. Erwin kind of ended his duel with this last ball because they were both out of ammo, and he and he said, you know, you know, what's the point of this? We're both out of ammo. We don't both need to die. Just come back with us, and we'll at least live that way. So he's dragging him back, and like you said, I thought it was going to be a happy ending. I was like, oh, look, we solved our differences with words, children. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't have to <laughs> resort to violence. And and then they were, they're reflecting, I think, oh, that's so sad. The Salamis is, where are they? You know, they abandoned the, the balls, but they didn't abandon them, like you said. Instead, they looped around the moon, <laughs> was it the moon, or wherever they were. Right. And they came from behind, and... And they shot up Irwin, but not only did they shoot up Irwin, they shot up the last ball pilot, too. So they, they, they killed their own man just to kill Irwin. Uh, clearly, these officers went to the, as you recall, Brian, there's two Federation officer academies. There's the Bright Noah Academy for Gentlemanly Officers and the Basque Oma Academy for Genocidal Atrocity Officers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for Crimes Against Humanity Officers. Yes, and this Solomon's captain went there because he's going to kill anybody that retreats, anybody that surrenders. So Cadillac is just completely distraught now. Like, she's shot, basically. Yeah. Her, her driftwood prediction came true, and it came true pretty hard. Now, if it was any consolation, those Salamises did get their comeuppance immediately as Isaac's favorite uh, Zeon heiress flew by in her guazine, and her her forces just annihilated these Salamises. That that was satisfying to see, right? 
Yeah, good to see uh, the Granada forces, or what's left of them at least, coming to the rescue and saving the day. But, you know, by then, Erwin was gone, and the mood on the bridge of the Jotunheim was just so much more dour. You know, to to Cuspin's credit, as much as he was introduced as a card-carrying villain with his little trench coat and all that, he seemed pretty happy that Erwin was living, was going to live until he didn't. Yeah, and I think overall he was pleased with the Ogo's performance. Yeah, despite his appearance, Cuspin comes off as pretty reasonable looking. And you know what I just realized? That keychain you gave me a long time ago in high school? It's one of Cuspin's medals. Oh, really? Yeah, it's the one he wears around his neck. Oh, yeah, interesting. It's the young cross, which is befitting my rank, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I was given that medal by Brian and Dagwin. <laughs> yep, there you go. <laughs> For my work with the Doms. But anyway, back to the series. <laughs> you broke so much new ground in the Dom research. I, know. I was like, all right, they need to be thicker. Their feet need to be bigger. <laughs> Right. I want those bell bottoms to be bell bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac was all about the thick train before thick was popular. Yeah, I was like, all right, we got to put more in that caboose. <laughs> we need wide bases. Double it up. Here. I want it to look like a diaper full of pudding. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of wide bases and thick mobile suits, Isaac, after that depressing episode, we march right into the Battle of the Bawaku with episode three, Spirits Returning to the Cries of Thunder. I don't know what that means, but it's going to be a, a rough episode for our uh, for our heroes here. So we open up, and Garen's in the middle of his speech. Didn't think we'd get to hear Garen's speech. Yeah, me neither. So the situation's about ready to start. We even see the Dolos getting ready for battle. Yeah, I knew you'd like that, that Dolos uh, cam- cameo. Yeah, it's big. Some might even say too big for its own good. <laughs> For more on the on the Dolos gear, go uh, listen to our episode on capital ships of the One Year War. Yeah, Isaac has a lot of colorful things to say about the Dolos gear. Yeah, it's uh, let's just say sometimes you bite off more than you can chew. <laughs> <laughs> so Garen's given his spiel, saying that the the bright light that everyone just witnessed—he's referring to the solar ray—is proof that the Zeon's cause is just. And that's when we meet the mobile armor of this episode, Isaac, that we will be te- that we will be testing called the Big Rang, which, man, that's a weird name. This thing is a behemoth. It's a mobile armor whose purpose is to deliver weapons to the mobile pods, to the Ogos, in battle, and kind of like resupply, refuel, repair them. How would you describe this thing? It's like, it's a little control module. is basically the, a separate mobile armor called the Big Row, which we, which we all know and love from the original 0079. Right. So the, a Big Row is attached to like this bigger thing. How would you describe that thing? It's essentially like a large skirt. If you remember, listeners, the Nightingale, if you remember, has a kind of a big skirt, right? A long kind of billowing skirt, almost like a wedding <laughs> a yeah. wedding dress that trails behind it. Yeah. It's essentially yep. that. So it's got like this circus tent shaped thing underneath it that uh, kind of extends backwards behind the mobile armor and is connected at a narrow point. It's kind of like a neck right underneath the mobile armor. And... Yep. Yes, it looks large and impressive, and I'm sure it's able to, you know, carry a lot of weapons and such. But May quickly points out that the whole point of that mobile armor is that it was designed for speed in mind. So attaching this thing to it really negates a lot of the benefits that a mobile armor has. I I thought that was a great character moment for him because it really does show that, hey, he's an engineer. Yeah. Right. I mean, you don't need that line for this for the episode to work, but I thought that was I thought that was good. Yeah. Even as fans, though, like you you look at it initially, right? Anytime we see a mobile armor, we're always kind of impressed and stuff, right? We always think it's going to be cool and stuff. But the the fact that this was kind of a mashup, I think, to fans, it did make most fans kind of stop and think, "Wow, that's a good point. That thing's not going to be able to move too quick after all." yeah and it doesn't i mean this thing is like the Nicki minaj of mobile armors right it's got this huge ass but it's like all fake underneath because the the skirt is like empty and it's just a bay for the the ogos to dock and like get automatically repaired right and unfortunately I, i know they tried hard but the engineering department made this so that it can only really refit one at a time i think yeah i wasn't clear i don't did we ever see multiple in there at a time there was, I felt like there was space, but maybe 
the, the, a lot of Ogos were dying in this battle, so I'm not sure that we, yeah. they ever had the chance. But I really just remember one. It looked like one gets on the conveyor belt, goes down underneath the skirt, and the mechanical arms inside the skirt refit it, reload it, and send it on its way. I, it doesn't look like a ton of Ogos can fit in there at once. It was it was a novel idea, I and mean, we, we've talked about mobile suits repairing other mobile suits before. Yeah. Maybe this demonstrates why that's not a great idea. Also, for all we know, it might not have worked as well with mobile suits since they're Ogos. You know, this might have been something that can only work with something that's limbless, like an Ogo, and small. Yeah, simple shapes. Yeah. Yeah. The battle's about to start. The e- the Federation fleet is basically arriving at Abawaku or, or areas around Abawaku. Our our heroes are sort of defending this one particular. Uh, what do they call it? They call it the field? Enfield, I think. Yeah, they've been assigned to Enfield, which yeah. it doesn't seem like it's directly in the path of the enemy, but it's um, close enough. <laughs> yeah, it, it becomes important later on in the episode. Yeah. But they're not necessarily on the front lines. But the fleet is still coming. I think they say the fleet outnumbers the Zeon fleet 6 to 1. So you're outnumbered 6 to 1, and, and you're, you've got the Ogos. It's going to be a good day. You don't just have <laughs> the Ogos, O'Brien, because this is the final battle. The Zudas are out there, too. Don't forget that. And even Cuspin is ready to do his part. Yep, even Cuspin launches in that silver Gelgoot. We finally get to see that thing in action. Yeah. They leave the Big Rang, and May is piloting the Big Rang. I think I think Cadillac was supposed to pilot it, but she's still upset about her brother, so she's like not in a good mental state. So <laughs> Cuspin's like, oh, May, you're going to do it. Cad- and, Cad- or is it, is it Proch now or or, May, or uh, Cuspin that tells May he has to do it? I think it was Cuspin because I think Cuspin has control at that point. But poor Cadillac. I think she's only communicating from video at this point through her room, right? She refuses to leave her quarters. She doesn't even doing her hair anymore. <laughs> she's just, she's understandably in, in mourning. Yeah. yeah. Very understandable. Yeah. Of course. So they, they leave May behind and then they go break through the Federation fleet to kind of get behind them. But now the Federation fleet's starting to attack. And I think... The, at this point, the Jotunheim, you know, they're not alone, right? They had some Musai escorts. Yeah. And I just, they, like, their whole plan was to break through the fleet and get behind them, but they lost all their Musai escorts on the way to doing that. So I was a little confused, like, was it really worth it? I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, <laughs> how could it have been? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even if there's a limit to what the Jotunheim can do, there's a limit to what the Ogos can do, even if they're supported by the uh, the big rag. You know, it's <laughs> I, th- this was a, a hope and a prayer. This was a Hail Mary at best. <laughs> yeah. So things are not looking good for the Odenheim. They're getting, and and the Ogos, they're kind of getting beaten down by these uh, Salamises. And then all of a sudden, the big rang comes from behind and May fires his, his particle cannons and he takes out three Salamises, Isaac, like right away. I was like, oh, wow. He's like up there on the ace pilot kill list now. Yeah. Three ships. To May's credit, I mean... Yeah, he's an engineer, but apparently if you give him the right thing, he's pretty damn good at his job. <laughs> yeah, now he's piloting a little recklessly here because I don't think he's really a pilot, I guess. Right. Plus, ultimately, the big ring is there to support the Ogos. Right. But he, he's not necessarily using it like that. I think he's probably going out a little bit too far. Although there's a great scene where he grabs a ball with his like big big ring claw and then he throws it and it hits other balls and it's like a pinball and it takes out a bunch of balls i, I loved that i thought that was hilarious those poor balls <laughs> they stand no chance if you're a ball pilot why and you look at the big ring why would you not just fly the other way yeah you know say you're you know you're being jammed or something like that and you end up like i don't know hiding in a part of the the, the battlefield that's like maybe less populated right <laughs> i don't know essentially i'm advocating desertion <laughs> Well, I just, I don't think you're really going to make an impact. It, it might be a smarter use of your resources to, to f- come back or f- to target right. someone else. Besides, there's enough space-type gyms that show up at this battle. Yeah, the gyms are out in full force, and they're 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 having a good showing, kind of like they did in the, uh, the episode with the Zuda. Yeah, they look great. May's already taken out three Salamises with his uh, particle cannon. He then takes out two more Salamises with his missiles, Isaac. This guy's got five Salamises under his belt now, and it's been... I don't know, a few minutes, maybe. That's a lot. Hey, that's the power of mobile armors. And then the ultimate test comes. A Magellan approaches. He shoots it with his cannon. It, he totally takes out the Magellan. But then they collide, and they give, it gives you a, a sense of 
uh, size of the Big Rang. When they collide, the the Big Rang is basically the same size as the Magellan. That's huge. Yeah, it is massive. Yeah, I did not realize that it was that big in, until that happened. Me neither. I thought it was smaller. I thought it might be a little smaller than a Solomus. I was trying to visualize, okay, where exactly is the cockpit in it and how small would maybe relative looking at the outside. And I was way off. This thing is essentially a mobile armor pulling a factory. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is enormous. I'm trying to think of like the other mobile armors we've seen. The Neozeal was pretty big. I wouldn't say it was bigger than like a Magellan, though. No. This thing is bigger than Neozeal. I mean, I guess it's Absolutely. shaped a little bit differently, but... Yeah, but if you remember the Neozeal, it died by crashing into, I think, a Solomus or a Magellan. So by by default, it was smaller than it. Yeah. So after he takes out the Magellan, I think that's when he f- first starts resupplying the Ogos. Although we've lost, I think, seven Ogos at this point. So the Ogo team's not doing well. Yeah. Then the turning point comes, Isaac. There are some friendlies headed back. A, a Zeon fleet is approaching. And they, they think that's a little weird, and they check in, and they we eventually realize that they must be... Fl- or is it Proch now that basically realizes immediately that they must be fleeing? And Cuspin is not too pleased at this, but then they get a communication from a Baoku command saying they no longer have the ability to command, and basically you should act with your best judgment. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting scene, especially since... The ship we see leading its little small fleet away, Brian, it was a Guazin. It was. Who do you think was in that Guazin, Isaac? Uh, Brian, I think we're thinking the same person. I think Delaz is in that Guazin getting the heck out of Dodge. Has to be Delaz. There's not that many Guazins that, that survive the one-year war. We know that he left after he found out that Kaecilia killed Girin, and he has a Guazin, so... I don't know. If the shoe fits, Isaac. The last fleet, day one. Be passing by the uh, the Jotunheim. Yep, waving hello. We'll see you guys later. <laughs> the Jotunheim has really done a who's who of Zeon here. Remember in the first episode, we saw Dagwin fly by and give him that little fake, uh, you're doing a great job, guys. <laughs> uh, and we, we saw him fly next to Cassilia last episode, and now we're, now we're seeing Delaz. Or who I presume is lost. Yeah. It's somebody that's pretty important later on, but right now it's a bad omen. If Aguazian's leaving the battlefield and Zeon announces they don't have military command over the battlefield anymore, and each ship or each fleet should uh, do what they think is best. And I think we even see the Delos get destroyed. We did. I was going to ask if you had, if you caught that. We do yeah. see one of the Dolos gears going down. I think we talked about how there were only like two made during the war. Right, and think they were both there and both sunk at the same yeah, <laughs> the so, same battle. Yeah, so you <laughs> so you get to see one sink here, which is pretty neat. Right. Um, yeah. Not that they focus on it really of any significant time, but uh, it was it was a good a good nod if you knew what it was. There was a lot of uh, chevets in these three episodes as well. Did you notice those? Yeah, and they show them as being pretty powerful. You know, uh, unlike Musai's, I think they were um, they were definitely fewer in number, but if I remember correctly, their weapons were much more capable. They really motor along, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if maybe they actually weren't that good later on because you never see Neo Zeon or Delaz ever use them. <laughs> so. No, they're, they're a little dorky looking compared to the Musais, yeah. but A bit of a chunky, chunky type ship. <laughs> uh, and then we get sort of a second battle. They collectively decide to kind of defend the escape route for Zeon forces that have to now flee a Baoku. So our end field that our team was defending, while it wasn't the front lines, it has now become sort of the middle of the escape route for the Zeon. So they're going to stay behind and try to fend off the Federation as best they can. But like Isaac said, there's a lot of space GMs out here. Yeah, and the situation starts uh, deteriorating. They lose a few more Ogos. I think we start to see the big rag taking a lot more damage, right? We even see Cuspin get shot up, and it looks like he dies. The captain has, like, a real shocked expression, right, when we see Cuspin take all that machine gun fire to his chest. Yeah, Cuspin actually, I guess I should say, this last battle here, it had some interesting animation. I I don't want to call it blurry, but it it wasn't super clear cut. Yeah, it was the rush and heat of battle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just in general, this whole episode did a fantastic job of showing how frenetic the Battle of the Balaku was. Yes. GMs and Zakus were surviving for mere seconds out there. It was a bloodbath. 
Right, yeah. A Zaku shoots one GM and then that Zaku gets shot or they had that cool little fight where like I think a Zaku cut into a gym shield with a heat hawk and then the gym like threw the shield or killed the Zaku but then the gym got killed right after. (laughs) Yeah, it was was a nightmare, man. I mean... Yeah, people are dying out there within seconds. Yeah, you'd be lucky to survive 30 seconds and what a waste of military hardware on, on both sides. I mean... The dollars uh, were really adding up there. But yeah, you're right. I believe an Ogo is about to get shot, and Cusman jumps in the way and just is riddled with machine gun fire. Which I can't, Was it from a GM or from a ship? I don't remember. I don't think it was from a ship, but uh, actually, hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure Cuspin knows. He just remembers. I just remember him looking so shocked that he actually took a ton of machine gun fire to his Gelgoog's uh, center chest. Yeah, he just took it straight up in the face and yeah he he blew up he he died no he lived and cuspin no he's kia he lived at the end no mm-mm. that was a different gelgoog oh are you sure that white gelgoog yeah. coming back i looked it up because oh. I, I did not because when i saw that gelgoog come back i was like that can't be that can't be cuspin i was like that dude died so there was another white silver gelgoog at the end yeah. that went to the jotunheim yes that's terrible <laughs> Cuspin is confirmed KIA. And I think it's yeah. because the one at the end was supposed... And this is what I'm saying. The series has a, like a drab color tone. So it's very hard to tell the difference between Cuspin's custom silver Gelgoog and the normal gray Gelgoog. And I'm pretty sure what we saw at the end of the show was a gray Gelgoog, not Man. Cuspin's silver one. Oh, Because you, if you notice, the one at the end did not have all the custom paint jobs with all the double zeros everywhere. Oh, man. Brian, this whole time I thought Cuspin lived. I oh, thought he no. took. <laughs> I thought he took machine gun fire to his chest, right? And maybe you know his mobile suit took damage. Sure, the Gelgoog lost comms. That's why Proch now you know looks so shocked, and they didn't hear from him till the end when he flew back with the surviving Ogos and with May, who managed to um, eject or at least get out of his big rag before it blew up. Yeah, I'm. I uh, I regret to inform you that Cuspin is confirmed KIA. So you never should have told me, Brian. <laughs> this is our last episode. <laughs> Isaac's throwing his mic away right now. Yeah, and I have to have to get my Cuspin body pillow. <laughs> <laughs> Herbert, come back to me. It's, it's right next to my Dagwin body pillow. <laughs> I still believe Herbert. He's like, he gave me his medal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we should say that, t- to your point, so Cadillac did kind of eventually get over her shell shock of having her brother die, and she did end up going out in Azuda. She did, uh, did end up saving May, because there was a GM that got pretty smart and decided to go under the Big Rang's skirt and try to, you know, do some damage in, under there, which is actually a great idea. But uh, Cadillac got him out before that happened and, and blew up the gym. So that was, uh, that was a, a fun moment, I thought. You know, just showing that she was back in full control of her uh, faculties. Yeah, she, she had to get a little bit of action in the final battle. She earned it. Yeah, but it doesn't really go that well for the big rang. It, you know, it gets blown up, like you said. And we're kind of left for a little bit wondering what the heck happened to everybody. And it's kind of just Proch now sitting there in the Jotunheim, kind of like, okay, did everyone die? And and he's like, oh, okay, well, this, this was our last battle. And then so we see a few Zakus, I think, right? A few Ogos? Something like that. Yeah, we see definitely see Ogos come back. Maybe just a handful. Uh, the Zudas come back. I think the Zudas all lived. Well, see, that was I had a question on that too yeah. because we only I watched it three times. I only saw one Zuda come back, and it was Cadillacs, and she was carrying May in her hand, who somehow, I mean, the big ring pretty much blew up or you know was hit with heavy fire. I guess May ejected and, and somehow lived through the debris and the shrapnel. Um, so she's carrying May in her hand. But I did not see uh, Washia there in his Zuda because he, he would have been in the other one, right? And so I was concerned that he died. But then I looked it up and he was confirmed to survive. So I guess they just didn't show his his Zuda coming back. Yeah. Or he, he ejected maybe. We don't yeah, know. Yeah, it could be. could be. So it's kind of backwards, right? You don't see Washi Azuda coming back. He survived. You see a Gelgoog that looks kind of like Cuspin's, but he did not survive, and he's dead. <laughs> it looks exactly like Cuspin. Until a few <laughs> minutes ago, I was under the impression Cuspin lived. <laughs> yeah, I think they could have... 
I, I do not think it was necessary to include yeah. that Gelgoog at the end if it was not Cuspins, but apparently he's dead. And it's not Would it have killed them to make it a teal Gelgoog? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what do you think of Cuspins Gelgoog? When I looked at it, I thought it was supposed to be white, which if you, if you know it, uh, some stuff about Xeon pilots, Shin Matsunaga is normally the Xeon ace pilot that uses a white color scheme, but it's actually supposed to be silver. I did not get a silver feel from this. To me, it looks gray. No, the first time you see it, it's white, maybe whitish gray, definitely not silver. Silver, as we all know, has a metallic sheen to it. This was a white mobile suit. Yeah, I agree. So I think they could have given it some shine if it was supposed to be silver. That could have avoided the confusion at the end, I think. If they want to make it white, just keep it white. Just don't, you know, confuse us. If he, if he died, we need to see a different color Gelgu come back. Not even close to the same color. Yeah, I agree. I would have liked to seen a little more out of Cuspin. He didn't get too much battle screen time in that Gelgu. I thought it would have been nice to see him. I don't maybe even like thirty more seconds of him. I think he shot down a few a few gems or, or balls or he shot some balls. I think right. Yeah, I mean, Cuspin was a came off as a really good guy. I ended up liking him. I think he should have had more of a hero's death, pretty much what you're saying. Maybe he can die covering them or something like that, right? He did sacrifice himself to save an Ogo. Yeah. Maybe that's not really worth it, but that's what, I mean, it was somewhat noble. Yeah, I mean, he's a young guy. The Ogo's a teenager. He probably figured, you know what? Uh, let this kid live. Right. So... Somewhat of a happy ending for at least our heroes. Not for Zeon, obviously they lost the war, but May's alive, uh, Washi is alive, Cadillac's alive, Prochnow's alive. That's pretty good. Yeah, this had more of a happier ending than I thought. I initially thought they were going to die to the last man, very right. Zeonic in a way, but I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Yeah, especially given how pretty much every episode before this one had ended with sort of the the new character for the episode dying when when the big rang blew up i thought that was kind of it i was like oh wow they actually did it they're gonna kill the cast yeah i imagined cadillac would follow her brother and die gloriously in battle Prochnow would have some final scene where he's you know talking in his head slowly while his ship burns and may would go down thinking about data as he runs out of oxygen or something <laughs> <laughs> sending the last report yeah to whoever's still listening or recording so isaac we've we've now finished the second ova i, I believe the third ova called uh ms igloo 2 gravity front it shifts perspectives a little bit i don't i don't think we join these characters again but we'll find out no you're probably a little disappointed on that but what did you think of uh ms igloo apocalypse 0079 i thought it was great I thought it was a great ending to these characters. We've only been with them for six episodes, but these were six great episodes. They were really fully developed characters, I thought. None of them came off as annoying um, or over-the-top villainous. They really humanized Zeon's side of the war. And I'm glad that some of them lived, some of them didn't, but ultimately this was a great story, great writing. Yeah, it's not animation, as we know it, it was, you know, computer-generated OVA, but I really enjoyed it, Brian. I agree. I thought it was excellent just from start to finish. I think these second three episodes maybe weren't as flashy as the first three, but they definitely got more into the nitty-gritty of the war instead of, like, flashy weapons, I think. I really liked the characters. I think Prochnow was my probably my favorite character. Really? Wow. Who was your, <laughs> who was your favorite? Um, hmm. Wow, that's hard to say. Was it Cuspin? <laughs> Are no. you the guy? <laughs> no, not Cuspin. I'd say May and Cadillac. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty interesting. But so many of our one-off characters, I forgot the name of the tank pilot. What was his name? Sonnen. 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 Sonnen was cool, especially with, he essentially had to fight a battle by himself. <laughs> yeah. A whole being eh, a little too reserved, I guess, for my taste. He was pretty kooky, but yeah. Yeah, but um, man, it was just a great story overall. And I, I did a little bit of reading. Uh, May ends up going to Axis, oh. if, what, if what I read is accurate. He, uh, he continues the fight. Interesting. I would have pegged him for someone who would get out of the war after all this. He lived the rest of his days, you know, maybe teaching engineering at, a, at the Republic of Xeon. 
the Axis Academy. What if, Isaac, what if he helped develop the Noise Eel? Hey, it's possible, right? It came from Axis. For all we know, he uh, took a lot of big ring data and put it into it. He said, you know, if I could <laughs> if I could redesign the big ring, I would have made it like the Noia Zeal, so I could have won that battle. <laughs> I wouldn't have made the ass so big. <laughs> you know, the fact that he ended up at Axis, I wonder if the uh if Delaz's fleet leaving, if maybe they instead of just trying to sneak out of there, they sent a, a more clear message to the the Jotunheim to come come along with them, if the Jotunheim mm. would have said yes. Yeah, probably. I mean, you don't really have a better what's a better plan than that? Because that was one thing I I was curious to get your take on. The whole episode was leading up to them defending the escape route, right? So that that the Xeon ships could flee back to side three. But in my mind, I was like, what are they really going to do when they get back to side three? The Federation is just going to keep flying to side three. Right. Well, I think the plan originally, from what I remember Kaecilia saying, was actually the plan was to to regroup at Granada. Mm. So... Not that that would have made too much of a difference, but, you know, and now that I think about it, I assume the message that went out to the Jotunheim about, you know, each ship or each fleet determine what you want to do, that must have come actually after they lost contact with Kaecilia's Zanzibar because she was still in command once Girin died. But once she died and got killed by Shar, I assume at that point, whoever was underneath her or next in command probably just said, you know what, all the zombies are gone. I should probably get out of here and tell each fleet to um, make up their own mind about what to do. I didn't think about that, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because yeah, at that point, they had no command structure. So Right. I mean, if if an admiral like Deslaz can take his fleet and leave, I wonder if other fleets left by that point. Maybe some went to Axis, some went straight back to Site 3, or maybe some tried booking it and going somewhere else in the, the Earth sphere. Maybe that was when the first guy went to Mars. And they were like, I've always wanted to make oh. this. I've always wanted to make this uh, <laughs> v- volcano gun. <laughs> Who wants to join me? <laughs> let's fly there right now. I wouldn't be surprised if a fleet took that time to say, hey, let's head to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> they won't get us there. <laughs> I'm so glad you picked up on that it was Delaz. Well, I, I feel like it has to be, right? Because otherwise, there's no real other reason to put a guazine there in that yeah. shot. You could have done a bunch of Musais or a Chevet yeah. or even a group of Papuas or something, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But the Guazin were like, okay, we all we all remember a Guazin and a group of Musai fleeing a battlefield. We know who they are. Yeah, totally. Or I really enjoyed that lore bomb. I think Delaz would have taken them in too. If as soon as he heard that they had like teenage recruits or something, he would have been all for it. He would have been like, definitely come with us. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Especially if you had the, this guy, Oliver May, who has all this test data for cool stuff. Yeah, he probably said, you know what? I'm going to need your help. I got this really wacky plan. <laughs> <laughs> I got this plan. It involves bouncing some colonies off each other. Can yeah. you do it? <laughs> <laughs> you won't believe how many plans are within this plan. <laughs> We're also going to rely on the Federation not putting keys on its Gundams for the next three years. It worked out. It paid yeah. off. If only the Ogos paid off, Brian, because they were <laughs> they were flying coffins to an extent. <laughs> oh, the driftwood of the one-year war. You remember that scene where Irwin's talking to a Cadillac in the hangar bay, and he's, like, wearing later hosen? <laughs> yeah, it was a little strange, yeah. A, a little too on the nose, you know. Yes, bit. we know Zeon is very much like Germany back during World War II, but, man, you know. <laughs> I, was thinking, I was thinking about that, and I was like, why is he wearing civilian clothes? And then I remembered, yeah, he's a volunteer. So maybe at this point in the war, they're like, he only has one uniform that they gave him. <laughs> that, and then maybe they're washing it. So let he, him wear it. Yeah. He's like, Just wear your later hose and it's okay. You know, you're a volunteer. Look, if you, if you volunteer to pilot a, an Ogo, you know what? You get to wear whatever you want, pal. You can wear whatever you, you can sit naked in your cockpit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In combat. You brave soul, you, you get into that cylinder of death. Man, I, I I have to say, too, that the Ogos were a very not-Zeonic color. They were like construction orange. <laughs> yeah, pretty drab. Maybe they were used in construction at some point or originally. I don't know. They definitely look like they would be like colony builder robots. It was a tube of doom, <laughs> a toilet paper roll of doom. <laughs> The doom tubes. <laughs> the cardboard on the inside. 
All right, Isaac, are you ready to rate Apocalypse 0079? I sure am, Brian. I'm going to give it a, let's see, on my 10-point horror scale, I'm going to give it 8.5 out of 10. I really enjoyed it. Interesting, Brian. As we all know, I use a scale of 5, and I will give MS Igloo Apocalypse 0079 a score of 5 out of 5 horrors. It is a must-see for all fans. Definite must-see for Xeon fans. It's a great ride, great writing, great story, and it's a it's a fun time. That's two 5 out of 5s in a row from Isaac. Hot diggity. You know this must be good. It's that good, Brian. It's that good. Any models you'd buy that we saw here in MSA Glue, Brian? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I wouldn't mind having a Zuda. I would build a Zuda. As long as it was, you know, the same price as like a Zaku. I think it'd go well in like a display if you had some Zakus. It'd be cool to have a Zuda in there. How about for uh, Apocalypse 0079? Um, well, the Big Rang would be incredibly difficult to build. I don't think they would ever make a Big Rang model. It's too no. big. Even if they did, I don't think I'd want one. But just for fun, I think I'd like an Ogo. <laughs> <laughs> like a little chibi Ogo? I'll say that. More interesting than a ball. Yeah, it would be fun to have like an Ogo versus ball display. <laughs> like like they're like locked in grapple yeah. dueling. Battle over Luna. I don't think I would build Cuspin's Gelgoog. I think I have enough other Gelgoogs to build in the meantime. No. I, I would like to see like a silver shiny one though. That sounds neat. Maybe if yeah, it looked more silver yeah. and shiny, I would buy it. Or I would be more interested in building it. And if I maybe saw him be more of a pilot. Yeah, call it True's cuspin gelgoog or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> this one is literally silver it's metallic paint so it's it's gonna have a shine to it like cuspin he's kind of a flashy guy anyways right he walks around with his medals we almost never see that with most zeon officers i think it would be neat to see someone build the mobile diver with the, the zagok but the third version with that big beam spray thing it would be pretty big oh that'd be awesome I mean, nobody has that, really. That'd be an awesome thing to build. Yeah. I think it would be something cool for them to maybe, for, like, Bandai to bring, to build and bring. It'd have to be, like, custom. I don't think they'd ever sell that. But it would be neat for them to build it and bring it to, like, conventions and stuff. But you know what? It's reachable in terms of kit bashing because you pretty much just need a model rocket, right? You need to find (laughs) the the right one. And then from there, you just kind of. Yeah, you turn it into the diver. And then you just buy a Zgok and you're halfway there. (laughs) <laughs> you're most of the way there yeah and the zagok actually had a cool color scheme it was like a light blue i definitely like that more than the the char color scheme yeah they they wanted to make sure it could blend in the ocean at this point in the war because they're not they're not exactly able to find zagoks anywhere <laughs> <laughs> running out of parts buddy yeah I don't have enough good things to say about this part of MSA glue. We've seen the first part. It was great. This part now is great. You know, I would have liked more even, you know, it would have been cool to see them do more tests. Maybe they'll release the, uh, MS igloo, the, uh, mobile evaluation team, uh, secret files or something. (laughs) (laughs) There is a manga, but I'm not sure if it's just an adaptation of the show or if it's actually a side story manga. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. But um, it'd be cool to see May again or find out what happened to Cadillac or Proch now, you know. Uh, maybe we can see May getting some adventures in Axis or, um, I don't know, Proch now training some, uh, some Neo-Zeon captains on how it's done or Cadillac being a little inspirational to, uh, you know, Haman or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, these characters definitely have that feeling because they are hero characters in the vein of, like, a, a Federation you know, protagonist or like good guy, right? They have that quality where you kind of want to see them again in something. Like they're all alive, so it would be cool if they pop up somewhere down the road. And this is Gundam, so there's always like side story ideas floating out there. You know, who knows? Maybe someone somewhere someday will will use them again in some you know one-off manga, uh, which would be pretty neat. I think it'd be a good use of the the characters. MS Igloo. Axis Chronicles. There you go. See? The story continues. It opens with them docking to Delaz's Guazine. Yeah, and they're like, why were you leaving? He says, you won't believe what happened on the bridge of the Dolos. (laughs) 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 
Sit down, Proch. Now you're gonna want to be seated when I tell you exactly what went down. <laughs> <laughs> From now on, we can't keep beam rifles in the bridge. <laughs> Not a good idea. Yeah. You never know when someone's gonna get shot in the head. <laughs> and and I mean right in the head, right between yeah. the eyes. From behind. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good shot, but still. <laughs> Were they actually on like a viewport looking out into space, or was that on an electronic screen? Because if Kaecilia missed, would would everybody on the bridge have died from decompression? <laughs> it's good. It's a good question. I think they were out in space, right? Weren't they like oh. in the dock, just kind of floating? Damn, she really wanted to kill him. Yeah. Yeah. Gotta seize, you know, carpe diem, seize the, seize yeah. the day, seize if the moment. She, yeah, she says, if I miss, I miss, but if I kill him, I kill him. <laughs> that would be really awkward if she missed. Yeah, she was like, damn it, we're all gonna die now. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing she had her Xeon standard issue life canceler with her. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> from the plants, straight from the plants, a Xeon laser life canceler. Hers seems to work much better than the plants did. Yeah. This <laughs> Oh, the plants. We'll return one day. <laughs> Not soon, though. Will we? <laughs> Wrap us out, Brian. All right, everybody. Please leave us a comment. Let us know what you think of uh, MS Igloo Apocalypse 0079. Let us know who your favorite character is, your favorite weapon that was tested in this series, and just your overall thoughts on you know how it went for Xeon. Did you think this was a good addition to the lore? We really enjoyed it, so we hope you enjoy it, too. If you haven't uh, already seen it, we recommend go check it out immediately. You can get it on Blu-ray, and I think, uh, like Isaac said, a quick YouTube search could uh, lead to some good alternatives for you. So please remember to like, comment, and subscribe, and we'll catch you later.